0: let's crack on. I wanted to explore my experiences as a black man growing up in the UK and I've done so through reading and also attempting or attending therapy to ease the pain of certain things that I've experienced or at least to better understand certain experiences that I have gone through that individuals of a different ethnicity might not have. If you're Calling me, or if you're called a monkey or a nigger enough times throughout your life, I assure you is going to leave a dent somewhere. And that dent has to obviously be addressed. And partly in that addressing is, is doing this, but also through therapy and, and self-exploration. But until now, when having conversations, which is rarely ever instigated by myself, I don't go out of my my way to talk about race. It's a very more of a private matter to me. But whenever I do talk about it a lot of the time I'm met with glazed over eyes, eyes that glaze over very, very quickly. Why would your eyes glaze over when someone speaks about something which affects them so gently, so greatly, and and is such also a great source of pain? I had one admittance of truth whilst having this conversation with a patient the other day. I feel guilty, he said. This small admittance of truth is, in my opinion, such a great hint as to what lies underneath the tip of the iceberg. This guilt, this sense of ownership of the sins of the past is experienced by many British and American people of European descent, knowingly or unknowingly. Yet what a farce, what a fallacy, guilty for what? During the height of the British Empire, 25% of people living in Britain didn't even have enough food to maintain a consistent calorie intake. Diarrhea and pneumonia were common causes of death in Britain at the time. You wouldn't have lived long enough to even die from your first heart attack. Even if you were lucky enough to be middle class in Britain at the time of the height of the British Empire, you might, if you're lucky, live to about 45 years old. My family were on the plantations with scars on their backs as whips tore into their flesh. If of English heritage, your family were likely to be in the workhouses in slightly more favourable conditions, yet still not great but your ancestors were surely closer to mine than they were of aristocracy. You have far more in common. Your ancestors have far more in common with the paupers working in the workhouses than you do with modern day politicians. The greatest lie that the working class has ever been told is that as long as you're better than a nigger or an immigrant, you are somebody. So you look down on the people who are trying to make something better of themselves, rather than look to banish the hand so firmly placed in your chest, stopping you from progressing any further. You look towards the imaginary ball and chain around your ankle, rather than the real knife in your throat. You look towards those individuals who are scrounging on benefits or the Black Lives Matter movement who are trying to progress their their own civil rights in the country, which statistically disadvantage them far more than any other population of individuals. So let's get this fallacy behind us that black progress takes from white progress. It's not the case. Let's stop seeing black and white as this spectrum of push and pull, where one side wins and one side loses. Let's accept that we're different yet equal, and let's explore my experience of being black and British for the hope of helping both of us rid ourselves of a legacy of inequality that has been perpetrated from the top down. So this uh, next section, I'm just gonna see if I've got any, any questions. No, no questions so far. Like I said, guys, if you've got any questions, feel free to just type in. So this next section talks about my earliest experience, I suppose, of racism. I was weeks old and my dad, being a police officer, invited his friends around. They quickly cracked a joke. They said, give it 15 years and they'll be picking me up in the back of a police van. Now, I assure you, I've never seen the inside of a police car and I've never, in fact, been arrested. But there is a stereotype of the black man being a criminal or criminalised. So strong is this stereotype that it applies to a newborn child, i.e. me. Black-on-black violence is a common myth to explain how black men are destined to commit crime. I got into a bit of trouble when I was younger. There were a few people who who were looking to hurt me. So, my mum allowed me to go on holiday with my friend, who is Nigerian. On the way back from Spain, we were sat next to a really nice white lady, probably about in her 40s. We greeted each other and we had a bit of a chat. And I then saw her switching spaces with her husband on the plane, who was whispering to her. My friend told me that he had insisted that they swap places because he said, I am trying to protect you. I was 16 at the times, at the time. Many times before and after that, people have crossed the road to avoid walking on the same side as me, I suppose, in fear of this archetypal black criminality that they might see in me. Yet we aren't criminals. But what a powerful lie. The criminality, that criminality has a genetic predisposition, that if you're black, you're more likely to be a criminal. You can spot a criminal, you can identify them purely based on the shade of their skin. It hides the fact that 75% of London's crime Occur in the 10% poorest areas. But that would put the onus on the responsibility of the state, close the wealth divide by taxing the rich and reduce criminality, create safer neighbourhoods, better schooling, etc. But that would take money out of the pockets of the friends of those politicians who are currently economically dominant. It's a lie. The black the, the, the theory of black criminality, of black on black violence, is a lie. Crime has a far greater correlation to poverty than it does anything else. The greater the wealth divide, the more likely there is going to be criminality in an environment. Yet, unfortunately, individuals try to to popularise these lies because it's far easier to look down than it is to look up. So, let's expand on this. Let's create this lie that those who commit crime in the UK are different to us. Those on Benefit Street are different to us. I can barely afford my rent and travel costs. I have maxed out all of my credit cards. I haven't been able to get a doctor's appointment in weeks. But it's because of those sponging, criminalised, lesser human beings. That's the source of my poor reality. When I was 14 and another time when I was 18 years old, I was dragged out of parties by a group of men in Gravesend who wanted to beat me. A child, I was a child at the time, dragged outside like an animal by men who wanted to beat me in the streets in front of everyone. I can clearly remember the hate on their faces, in their body language, as they hurled racial abuse at me. Thankfully, they didn't get so lucky. I'm quite handy with my fists. (laughs) But the frustration from many members of the British working class is palpable. They look down rather than look up for the source of their struggles. At the end of the day, these frustrated racists sit down to gobble up the lie that as long as I'm not an immigrant, I'm somebody. It's the imaginary ball and chain around the ankle, the black, the Jew, the pole, the Muslim, the sponger. It's not the state. I dare not blame the prime minister or the government for my flaws. And there is the self-defeating lie. As long as I am not them, I am somebody. And if it wasn't for them, I would be so much further ahead if it wasn't for these immigrants and these sponges who are taking, <laughs> taking money out of the state. This is the lie that people keep telling themselves. Next section, once again, I'm just gonna check if I've got any, any questions or if you want me to keep on talking. No, I'll keep on talking then. But once again, if you have any questions, if you wanna mention anything, then please just uh, just comment below. So my next section is based on a, on a few things that happened when I was uh, about 11 years old and onwards. The question is, why did I come home age 11, screaming to my mum that I hate myself as I locked myself in the bathroom? The black population of Gravesend when I, where I grew up was minimal in the early 2000s. From the first day of school, I was asked what gang I was part of. I was asked what basketball team I played for. And uh, if I was asked if I could rap. And what drugs I sold? Obviously, these guys saw me, and they just assumed that I was the stereoty- stereotypical black person in their eyes. The day I received a mobile phone, the number was passed around the class. I was sent pictures of monkeys, texts reading "monkey, coon," etc., all day, and it lasted for almost a week, being held constant racial abuse as uh, as an eleven year old. As soon as I got in, as soon as I got indoors, I ran upstairs sobbing. My mum asked me what was wrong. I replied, I hate myself. By 11 years old, I'd been told that my only heritage as a black man was the history of the slave and that my mentality, or sorry, and that my physicality linked me more closely to an ape than to a human. And the more aggressive and angry you become, the more of an ape you are. The angry black man can never win. But why? Anyone will tell you that I'm practically hairless, My lips are thick and my hair is curly. Very, very unape like So where does this primate or animalistic perception of black people come from? My friend who works in marketing the other day told me how a South African colleague of his said that my friend who's Nigerian was finding it harder to do certain tasks because black people are evolutionary about 200 years years behind white people. This is what my Nigerian friend was told literally a few months ago at work. She clearly didn't know that evolution takes millions of years and that, uh, and, and that evolution for human beings has been at a halt for 200,000 years. But uh, I wouldn't conclude that she was evolutionary behind due to her stupidity, yet that stereotype is perpetuated onto us. To answer this question, Akala said, whenever you describe a human as an animal, that is a mandate for murder. And this is res- uh, in response to Katie Hopkins' comments on immigrants being like cockroaches who are looking to kind of take over take over England, a country that hasn't been invaded since 1066, yet for some reason people keep fearing this mass invasion by, by immigrants. From as early as 1454, Pope Nicholas said to King Alfonso of Spain, take the Africans for they have no souls. This was actually in response to a public outcry in Europe. They heard about the genocide of the Native Americans and there was mass uproar because the native americans were also being enslaved and genocided at the time in america so in response to this obviously the europeans wanted to increase their economic ability or their economic power so they turned towards pope nicholas and pope nicholas responded take the africans because they have no souls i enslave them instead And I think that this is a perfect metaphor to show what happens in our own souls. The king seeking permission from moral authority to question what he can actually get away with without doing harm to his soul. Not avoiding harming a human being. Harming human beings has led, historically, to great wealth. He wouldn't want to stop doing that. But his own soul is his focus. He wants to excuse his soul from the harm of sin. And the only way to do that is to make sure that those who you are sinning aren't human. As long as you don't sin or perpetuate harm or cause harm against a human, you can get off scot-free. And these stereotypes proliferate throughout history. Eugenics, which is an entire scientific discipline, was created to provide evidence for the inferiority of black men and a lot of their pseudoscience, i.e. their fake science, still has influence today. They had no luck in finding any significant differences between the intellect of black people and non-black people. But at the time, it allowed so-called good Christian men to commit genocide, enslave, hunt, kill, maim, without sacrificing their chances of getting into heaven. The bottom line is that if someone is lesser than you, they are disposable, as is their pain. Look out for this when you see people dismissing the pain that people experience every day, yet this archetypal or stereotypical image of the hypersexualized aggressive, violent black person still remains but the interesting thing is that it 's not us who promote this stereotype. The population of black people is three percent, less than two million people in america it 's thirteen it 's thirteen percent. This is not large enough to support a large economy and it 's especially not large enough to support an economy the size of for example hip-hop It's supported by white suburban populations this allows the stereotype of a gang-banging aggressive black person to be reinforced by demand not by actual reflection of the population there is a literal demand to see aggressive hyper-masculine black people i remember and i'm sure that there's a lot of other people who hearing this will will be able to resonate with this i remember almost being encouraged as a teenager, especially by girls, to be as aggressive and, and hyper-masculine as possible, almost to match up to this image of 50 Cent or someone like that that they see on, a, on MTV. It's terribly, terribly harmful when the image of a population is not actually within their own demand. Normally, a population of people would demand a certain image of themselves, which is useful to them and their own progression. Instead, unfortunately, the image of black people, at least for the past 100 years, has been encouraged for commercial reasons, a stereotype encouraged for commercial reasons, rather than actually what's beneficial to, that pop- to us or our population. So when you see 50 Cent or Stormzy, for example, know that we didn't put him or them on that pedestal. We can't fill the O2 arena, but white teenagers can. Here are some examples of things that I have personally heard directly about black people they're stupid, they're dangerous, they're primitive, they're backward, they don't feel pain. All of these I've heard in my lifetime about black people to my face. Many of these statements are also repeated by the police and by health professionals today. For example, if you're black, you have, for the same symptoms, a seven times greater likelihood of being sectioned under the Mental Health Act. It's partly why black people are twice as likely to die due to police force and why we're less likely to receive medication for pain there is a subconscious fallacy that we are less than human there are reports of um they basically analysed police radios and they assess language that comes up when talking about black people and language such as super tough or "superhuman." um they're very very they're a lot more common when these individuals, these police officers are talking about black people, that what this means is subconsciously it encourages them to use more force to restrain us. Hence why black people in, in under, under, when police force has been used are twice as likely to die than their white counterparts. The truth is that it robs us of our bodies, but it robs both sides of their souls. You give up your own humanity in allowing the harm of black people because somehow you think, even if it's subconsciously, that we were destined to receive it. Whether the harm is psychological or physical, the lie that we had it coming and that the onus is on our own form, on our own physicality and our own destiny is accepted. And I'm just gonna have a look at some of these questions that have come up. I know there's been a few. So do I think that, so this is from Lisa, do you think that the percentage in the UK that does make up the upper class that does make up the majority of our government and the circles they're in. Do you think that the percentage in the UK that does make up the upper class, that does make up the majority of government? Oh, okay. Yeah, so I would say that that's what you've, I suppose, got institutionalized classes of. I don't think it's a coincidence that many, many prime ministers in the UK come from certain universities. A lot of these individuals come from certain classes, so-called classes. And a lot of them take on certain philosophy, philosophy majors or philosophy focuses at universities, PPE, philosophy, politics, and economics. Now that can heavily sway things. So for example, there's a very popular philosopher called Nietzsche. And Nietzsche popularized the slave and master morality, which is where he basically explains that society is all about the survival of the fittest. And that there's a lot. The 97% of the population are weak, and that they're subservient, and that they're just basically hoping for their own comeuppance in the afterlife. So if they pray hard enough, or if they do a good enough job, that their own ethical uh, good standing will be rewarded eventually. And that this is the opposite to the master morality, which is that you should take everything you can and get as much as you can from life. And, Kind of stuff who it harms now you can imagine that if politicians are reading this philosophy at university that is going to heavily affect the way that they treat more vulnerable people or more uh, more oppressed or more marginalized people but we have to also acknowledge that there are many different types of philosophy for example philosophy that was practiced in ancient egypt which would be called ma'at heavily focused on the responsibility of those who are in the top one percent to take care of those who are in the bottom few percent So philosophy can be massively different. And unfortunately we have to rely on uh, individuals of significant power to make sure that they're reading the right philosophy for everyone. Right, Uh, and then Mika said, when women think men are weak, when they do not portray gang back. Right, so this is how, for example, um, how because uh, the black community might not be in control of their own stereotypes or their own archetypes if they watch enough TV, or if they watch enough, um, I suppose, music videos and things like that, which are popularized by people from outside the community, that can actually affect the way that we view ourselves. And I'm actually going to talk about this later. It's called double consciousness. So going on to the next section. And once again, if you've got any questions, please feel free just to put them in below. So my next, the title of the next section is, you have taken from me who I am, and now you're telling me what to be. So this is going on from what you are talking about, Mika. I remember being furious. Everyone has a longing to understand themselves. I was sitting with my dad age six or seven. It was a winter's night. I remember the fire burning. I was looking at a map. I asked why there are black people in the Caribbean when they're from Africa, considering there's a whole ocean between them, right? And he then told me as to how 20 million Africans were taken to the Americas as slaves. My last name was that of the last slave owner who owned my family. And I thought, well, that sucked. I was very, very angry. So whoever didn't know this, basically um, individuals, uh, you'll notice that a lot of black people, in fact, most black people probably still in the UK and definitely in America have European last names. Now, the reason for this is that, the slave owner would give his name to his slaves, uh, which means that my last name being Reed, that's the last name of the slave owner who was last to own my, for example, um, great-grandparents or great-great-grandparents. Um, and any time, for example, if you were to think of five black celebrities off the top of your head, so I think what, well, Serena Williams, Will Smith, um, who else, Denzel Washington, um, Usain Bolt, and roy jones jr all european last names uh, because they were given the names of their slave owners and then they would have inherited that and passed it down the void of knowing who i come from was filled without my control with a legacy of abuse that was outside of mine and my ancestors control whereas Winston Churchill, Lord Nelson, Mighty Blighty, the British Empire, White Egyptians, White Jesus, Cowboys and King Arthur fills the young English children's minds. My mind was filled with lashes of the whip and 400 years of hopelessness and despair. The stereotype of gangbanging, violent black person was further pushed onto me during my early years at secondary school. In the first week of school, age 11, I was asked what gang I was a part of and what drugs I had to sell. Age 11 years old. W- W.E.B. Bois, an African-American sociologist, describes what's called, or what he coined, double consciousness. It's how we as black people in the Western world have to view ourselves primarily through the eyes of other people, i.e. we are predisposed to viewing ourselves through the eyes of the archetypal Karen. <laughs> I was a great example, or I had a, a great example of this the other day. So I had a patient who came into the clinic, and uh, she is a young lady of Grenadian, Grenadian descent. Uh, Grenada is a, a country in, in the Caribbean, and a white lady had confronted her quite aggressively. And she felt, my patient felt, that she was the victim of stereotyping, but my patient had felt obliged not to become aggressive in response. And I asked her why. And she said, because she didn't want to fulfill the stereotype of being an aggressive black woman. And this is an example how even when you want to be aggressive, when you know that you've been, I suppose, offended or abused or someone's taken something from you, you're still refraining from showing your true feelings and being aggressive because you don't want to fulfill that stereotype. The issue that comes with this is repression repressing every ounce of anger, despite being more likely to experience situations that make you angry. I'm going to, I'm currently going through therapy at the moment and race has come up multiple times, many times. It's a huge topic in my therapy. I said to my therapist that this is how I was explaining my mind. I said, my mind is like a house. And in that house, I have a tiny minute room, which is incredibly neat and tidy. Everything's under my control in that room. But outside the room is dark, cold, and messy. And stomping stomping around this uh, huge house is a huge, dark beast who is looking for me. He wants to destroy me. And the moment I step outside that room in my mind, he will try to hurt me. And when that self-hate gets too close, it throws me into a depressive state for days, weeks, or months. My therapist explained that the beast stomping around the house is actually me and that it consists of all the feelings of anger and hate that I had repressed because I'm trying to protect myself from becoming the archetypal beast of a man that I have so often been told that I am. And because I can't express it without fulfilling that stereotype, I repress it. So it's almost as though, you know, growing up being black you're at least I was told of multiple features or multiple things about myself which someone else hates and because I didn't have a true understanding of myself at that time I have no choice but to actually listen to these individuals and at least take some influence from it i.e they hate the blackness in me but I can't hate the blackness in me because I'm black so therefore that hate and that anger and everything that's stirred up and the times that i want to be angry but i can't be i have to repress it and put it to one side which then causes me not to feel anything and that is what i'm having to go through through therapy is trying to get back in touch with these emotions that i've had to repress and unfortunately my therapist went on to say that this is actually a very very common phenomenon for black people and now this comes on to the the black lives matter movement when paris was burning No one said all cities matter. Everyone put up a flag on their uh, profile picture to show support. But when black lives matter, all lives matter, that didn't really quite make sense to me. I remember when I was seeing a girl when I was 14 and I broke it off with her because I had to walk behind her because when we were out in public, her family couldn't see her with a black boy, even as a friend. And I was even talking to a friend earlier today about this and he said that he'd experienced the same thing multiple times. But a couple of years after she started to see someone else and this individual that she was seeing didn't like the fact that she had previously been with a black boy. He called me a nigger multiple times behind my back. So I confronted him. He said that I should be half as offended because I'm half black. So where does this notion of diluting a black person's pain come from? I've experienced it many, many times. The all lives matter notion, why would you want to dilute a message that is ringing so true to improve the civil rights of people? If there's a knife in my back, I don't want you to tell me that it isn't there or that it's not that bad before you've even given yourself a chance to look. Perhaps you don't want to look, but why don't you want to look? That's my question. Why don't you want to acknowledge my pain? Is it out of fear that you might have unknowingly put that knife in my back? that if you remove it, does that instigate that you were you, the one who put it there in the first place? The irony is that I would never dream of accusing a white person that they're responsible for the racism that I face. I just want your help as a black person to a white person to reduce the likelihood of this racism occurring for another 400 years, as if 400 years isn't already enough. Yet, the internalisation of guilt dominates. And why? You were in the workhouses when I was in the plantation. You helping me is not the denial of your pain. It's also not the admittance of any wrongdoing. Just help me, please, take the knife out of my back. Another argument that I've faced is, or that I've, I've, I've had, is, is that the British Empire was overall pretty good. In fact, I was talking to an individual earlier, Oh, no, I wasn't talking to him. I saw him comment and, uh, on, on someone else's post. And I had to comment. This individual said, he said, um, if it wasn't for the slave trade, where would all these black lives matter people be? Basically, what he was instigating is that the slave trade saved these black people from probably swinging from trees and living in mud huts, which is a complete fallacy. But even if we create, we'll use some statistics to, to support this or support his what he was saying, or support the fact that people like him actually exist. 60% during a survey, 60% of Britons were proud and 50% thought that countries were better off for being in the empire or being under the British Empire. So 60% of British people were proud of the British Empire and 50% of individuals thought that these countries in the empire were better off for for them being there. Well, if this is the case, and I actually, I I sincerely am asking this, I would like to to know what you guys think. If this is the case, can you please tell me one crime that was committed by the Nazis that was not committed by the British Empire? I can't think of one. I literally cannot think of one crime that was committed by the Nazis that wasn't previously or after committed by the British Empire. When you're looking at genocide, you're looking at the Boer War, and you're looking also at Kenya, and also instigating what happened in Rwanda and the genocide of the Native Americans. When you're looking at enslavement during the Holocaust, well, I mean, you, you, you talk about 400 years of that, plus the uh, indoctrinated servants that were taken from even India during the uh, British Raj, who were then Barbadoed, which is where you smash them around the back of the head and put them on a ship, and then, then took them to Trinidad and Tobago and India, which is why you've got so many Indians in Trinidad and Tobago. When you're looking at I mean, even when we, we, we look at the crimes that were instigated so much about history, at least, at least a person's identity wasn't removed. And I think that a person's identity is gold dust. It's so much to hold onto, so much to... You could leverage your identity. And when your identity, your religion, your name has been taken from you, beaten out of you with a whip, it causes a lot of harm. Can you name me one country occupied by brown or black people who had a higher... Gross domestic product at their independence than they did previous to their involvement with the British Empire, i.e., economically, if the British Empire was actually all that good, there should be countries that had a higher GDP after colonization than before. I think India's GDP, when you look at the world on the world stage, was something like 20% previous to colonization. India produced 20% of the world's GDP previous to the British Empire. And then after the British Empire, I think it was about 3%. The answer being no, as far as I'm concerned, in terms of was the British Empire beneficial for these countries should at least provide some evils as to the evil, uh, some, some evidence as to the evils of the British Empire. The solution in my opinion, is that we must all be humbled by the truths in our own history. The English must remove their internalised guilt for the sins of the ruling elite who existed at the times of their ancestors. It is not healthy. But we as British people must take responsibility to see through the lies that we have inherited through imperialism. We must stare into the souls to find any mountains or scraps of bigotry for it is only holding us back as a nation as well as individuals. We as black people must learn about heroes in our image More black people died for our own progression than saints did for Christendom. Toussaint Louverture freed more Africans from slavery than Moses did Israelites. Marcus Garvey's organization, the UNIA, had six million members. That's over double the population of Jamaica, all striving for economic development. The African king, Mansa Musa, is the richest man who has ever lived, yet practiced many socialist ideologies. It's very common in Africa, or even today, but especially historically for people to their birthright to be land and a house. The ancient Egyptians took Sudanese culture and revolutionized philosophy, architecture, religion, science, art, greatly influencing the world today. There is evidence of African exploration of America predating Christopher Columbus. We must dig out the void which has been filled with the myth of the passive slave patiently waiting for the day in which his chains will be removed. For example, the, um, when it comes to talking about the abolition of the slave trade, a lot of people say that they want to give Britain credit because Britain was one of the first nations to get rid of slavery. The actual fact is that what was happening at the time is partly due to the French Revolution. This, uh, the French Revolution inspired the Africans on the island of Haiti who were enslaved at the time. They saw these working class individuals, or they heard about these working class individuals, freeing themselves from their own demise this then inspired a man called Toussaint Leverture and Jean-Jacques Dessalines to lead the Haitian revolution what happened after that is you have the only time in history that a nation of enslaved people had overthrown the people who enslaved them and set up a democracy they overthrew the British navy they overthrew the French navy the Spanish navy And as well as that, they even defeated Napoleon Bonaparte. Now, what actually happened after that is Napoleon wrote to Jean-Jacques Dessalines after he had captured and enslaved Toussaint Leverture, after he lied to him to say that he was going to negotiate with him. And he wrote him a letter to say that if he did not pay reparations for the freedom of the Africans on the island of Haiti, then he was going to take the island over by full force of the French army and enslave them once again. Haiti did not finish paying for the reparations until 1947. After this, Samuel Sharp, in 1831, he led a rebellion of 60,000 Africans against the British on the island of Jamaica. My family personally fought in this revolution. Their names are chiselled in a monument in Montego Bay. This put so much pressure on the British that they had to free the slaves because they were scared that the same thing would happen in Jamaica um, and other British colonies that would have happened in Haiti. Haiti, In Haiti, they killed every single French person on the island and they were scared that the same thing was going to happen in Jamaica. So because of this, at the same time, uh, because there was already pressure to release the Africans from slavery. Now, at the same time, you have the Clapham Boys. These, this, this was uh, headed by uh, William Mul- Wilberforce William and a couple of other individuals whose names have escaped me. But British people celebrate or British history celebrates William Wilberforce because they want to own the emancipation of slavery, even more so than they do want to own slavery itself, which is quite weird. But anyway, we have to acknowledge that the emancipation of slavery was an African endeavor. There was a war fought in Africa, a war fought by Africans in the Caribbean, and that is what emancipated the slaves, and we have to celebrate them. We have to celebrate these heroes in our image. We must fill this void with the pharaohs, the kings, the queens, the rebels, Samuel Sharp, Jean-Jacques Dessalines, Toussaint Le Queen Nannies, and King Kojo. We must tidy the world outside of our home campaigning to eradicate police brutality, create a fairer schooling, fairer employment opportunities. We must make the world a fairer place. In doing so, we can fill our homes with greater peace and prosperity. In a game of snakes and ladders, the person with less snakes and more ladders wins most of the time. The person playing with more snakes and less ladders will lose most of the time. And this I think is a really good metaphor to show what happens generation after generation of multiple setbacks and barriers economically and socially to someone's progression the individual who wins i.e the anomalous black person who wins against all odds should not be celebrated and held as evidence of there being no disadvantage in the first place kudos to him he beat the system or she beat the system but it doesn't mean that the system isn't corrupt the question should be why aren't there more people like him and the people who fix the game should be celebrated, not the anomaly. To put it into perspective, if you're black and you present with the same mental health sy- symptoms, you're seven times more likely to be sectioned. That will go on your health records. That might affect or that will affect your ability to gain health insurance or potentially even to get a job. If you're black, you're, dub- you're twice as likely to be killed after police use force uh, than a non-black person. You're seven times more likely to be excluded for the exact same misdemeanor at school. All these things affect an individual's education, their ability to thrive in their community. If you're black, you're less likely to get a job if you have a black-sounding last name, i.e., an African last name. Even at school, due to subconscious bias, teachers are likely on average, or on average, they give black students, uh, they score black students significantly lower than their white counterparts, purely because they have this subconscious bias that black people were less intelligent. This, this is why black kids, their schools shoot up after the age of about 15, because that's the age that their exams are externally mediated, which means they're, they're marked not by their teacher, but by people outside of the school. But the question is, what has happened to a black person's psyche when they've been basically given this false narrative for years up until that point that they're less intelligent, Despite doing work, which is just as good as anyone else, if not better, they're less intelligent. We are playing snakes and ladders and we need to derig the game. I'm currently working on a range of children's historical novels to inspire the next generation and teach them about the heroes who appear in their image that shape the world. I'm passionate about African history and my legacy. If you have any questions at all in future, then I'll be more than happy to help. Thank you so much for watching my talk. I hope that wasn't too too deep in fact no uh the opposite i hope that was deep enough uh let me see if we've got any questions that's all from yesterday if you guys have got any questions and feel free please just to uh put below i'm just gonna tidy this up i'll put this on a podcast as well so you guys know you guys can so that's a that's a that's a, a brilliant point a brilliant phrase which is tossed around so often that black people have a chip on their shoulder and um the reason why this runs so deep is first of all, it's denying pain. If you say that someone has a chip on their shoulder, you're basically saying that they do not have a justified reason for experiencing as much anger and aggression as they do. How awful is that to live in a reality which you know to be true? You've seen it to be true. Yet when you try and express that, even if it's just for consolidation, you just want someone to understand your pain, it's, the, it's dismissed. And I think that, that I mean, that has been so much of my childhood. I remember being told multiple times. I remember, I remember being called a nigger when I was 18. No, no, I was 16, 17. A kid in class was literally singing in my face, nigger, 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 in my face, literally within a foot in front of me and i smashed him to pieces i gutted him like a fish and um i remember being called into the head uh, into the 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 assistant head's office and he sat me down and he said that well so-and-so said that you're allowed to call him that why are you so angry why did you take it so badly and i had to just to stop him this is six i was 16, 17 years old at the time, talking to a man who was in his 50s. And I had to say, I had to educate him. And I had to say to him, look, you will never understand. You will never understand the contextual backdrop as to why that word caused so much pain. You will never understand. So just give me my punishment and let me go. And I was excluded for a week. He got off more or less scot-free. I was excluded for a week. This is, the, this is the issue, you know. You're talking about angering a population of people, angering them over and over over, over again, calling them names, not letting them into clubs, not giving them a job, giving them a, a bad grade for when their work is just as good. All these things create so much anger, calling them ugly or, or only looking at them for their own masculinity or using them wanting to listen to their music, but not wanting to go to the to go to the clubs, i.e. taking in the art that black people create, but not actually wanting to be around them. It's all so ridiculous, yet this anger is expected to just be, I suppose, the anger is expected to just die out and not bubble up eventually. And I think that people need to understand that when they see people protesting and marching during a pandemic is because it has not been until now that no one has listened. When, um, in 1981, people, there were the Brixton riots, and people will talk about the Brixton riots and how bad it was, and these individuals smashed up their home and burned these things down, and it was because of uh, there being a little bit of an issue between the people living in Brixton, either the people from the Caribbean living in Brixton, and Africans living in Brixton, and the police at the time They failed to mention that months before that, 13 children died in a house fire in New Cross. The house was burnt due to uh, someone committing arson. Individuals wanting to set fire to to this house when these young black children were having a birthday party. 13 of them died. Yeah, I think 13 of them died. And um, the police didn't investigate. They forget that contextual backdrop when it comes to the Brixton riots. And I think that people are very, very quick to dismiss the hundreds of years of oppression and, and disadvantage that black people have faced. And now it's only bubbling up into a peaceful march. I think people were, uh, I think their expectations, they hold other people by force, to false force expectations that like they wouldn't hold themselves to. Um, Louise, you said you've been transfixed for the whole time, Learned so much about black history and your difficulties facing racism growing up and how it still affects you. Yeah, and I think that it's, it's quite interesting because, you know, it's very, very weird to be able to talk to someone purely based on their heritage and not understand just, and to, to not just only, you know, understand their, their cultural heritage, but also understand how much they probably have suffered Growing up purely based on the colors of the skin. I mean, it is so, and it's almost like a vent that has to be released. Every time, I would say the majority of times, I have uh, black patients, we'll end up joking about certain misdemeanors that happened that week or the past month purely based on our appearance or how people have perceived us. And it comes a little bit of a self degrading joke and a bit of a a laugh, but at least it's good to, to laugh about it. I think that it's, it is important for people to understand what goes on. I think it's important for people to listen. There's um, a, 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 the early psychologist, Freud. Freud said that you can't fix what's in the subconscious or the unconscious until the conscious shines light on it. And I think that's such a good metaphor for society. You have to look at it. You have to listen and you have to see it. You can't turn a blind eye for the sake of your own moral standing. You have to acknowledge it. If someone is in pain, if someone is suffering, you absolutely have to recognise it. Otherwise, you're not just doing them an injustice, but you're doing yourself an injustice. I think ethically and morally, we have to take other people, responsibility for other people's pain, especially if we can help. Uh, people are seeing it the wrong way. So I'm reading Lisa's comment. People are seeing it the wrong way round. Um, Not that it's a pandemic, we shouldn't be protesting. They should see it so important that not even a pandemic is going to stop the protest. And yeah, 100%, I would see it. I mean, me me personally, I would say that I would agree. I I can understand this from two perspectives. I can understand this emotionally. I can completely understand why black people would want to march. At the same time, I am concerned because I know that people of black and ethnic minority are more likely to suffer if they do contract the coronavirus thankfully there haven't been any rises in cases yet as far as I can see but um, there is a bit of a paradox but yes I think people should be empathizing with these individuals and realizing that if they're marching during a pandemic then it must really mean something to them. Zafuddin um, so you're uh, to be physio fit and well I really appreciate you sharing your own experience and difficulties you have had to go through and still enjoy that now you are an amazing young man <laughs> thank you thank you so much and it does go on even even as a health professional I've had uh, I think one of my last my last funny interactions with a patient was when they said that and I'm being serious this is what they said to me they said you see really your lot shouldn't really be here I swear to god that's <laughs> That 's what they said to me this this lady said that because i 'm an ethnic minority i shouldn 't actually be in the in the u k technically i e that Britain did me a favor, which I think is such a farce when you look at the the industrial revolution, um, the industrial revolution was really built on the back of yes one hundred percent machinery, but machinery that was really able to speed up the production of cotton uh, cotton was imported from obviously the Caribbean and even when, and I'll tell you about this as well, so even when slavery was eradicated in the Caribbean, the British were still buying cotton from plantations in America. So they were supporting slavery economically, even though they weren't supporting it, even though they weren't supporting it legally. Um, yeah, not good, not good. All day, every day, yeah. I feel, I feel, I feel you, Zach, I feel you. There's one more point that I wanted to make as well. Du, 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 du. All, right, that's about it. All right, let me just pause this. I'm just going to wait for two seconds. Thank you so much for listening to my podcast, which I recorded via a live recording on Instagram Live. That's how I like to do my podcast because I feel that I'm able to reach more people. I'm able to talk to more people and also interact with questions that they might have at that time. As I said, I'm currently writing, first of all, an African curriculum or African history curriculum for children in the UK, uh, age year seven to year 11. We'll be providing them with three to four hours a year of African history, as well as that I'm currently writing historical novels with my cousin uh, to provide children with education on African history and the true history to make sure that school children have a much better globalized perspective of the world rather than this imperialistic vision of the world that they might have otherwise been bestowed upon them. But as well as this, to make sure that children of African descent are seeing heroes within their image. Please follow me on Instagram at Elliot Reed or Elliot John Reed, E-double-L-I-O-T-T-J-O-H-N-R-E-I-D and keep in touch with me and follow me on my story. Thank you.